Hello and welcome to The Crux of the Matter, episode 60. Where have we been for the last two months? My name is Pastor Todd Peppercorn. This is Professor Scott Stigmeyer. Hey, Scott. I remember you. Yeah. (laughs) Seems like it's been a while, but here we are. It has been. Our uh, our week or two hiatus ended up being more like two months, but uh, that's okay. Everybody's busy in the summer, and uh, and it just seemed like it was better to, uh, rather than try to squeeze in something that we didn't really have time to do right, to just say, all right, we're going to take a vacation from this for a while. So we're back, and hopefully we can, uh, uh, as we roll into the fall, we can get into a little more regular schedule. So, uh, so what are you teaching this fall, man? Well, I, uh, I teach the, really the same thing I taught last fall. So in terms of what the classes are, so, um, that's cheating. I, it's cheat. You know, it's kind of cool to teach <laughs> something again. You know, that was yeah. one thing, you know, in the parish, at least in the parish, you get to always pick whatever you want to teach, right. but more you only less. get to more or less, but you only get to teach it once. You know, you can't teach it. Unless you have a large church. And, right, or once every 10 years or something. Or once every 10 years. Yeah, so I'm actually kind of enjoying being able to use notes, my old notes and, and PowerPoints and refine them and improve them. So right. basically I'm teaching several sections of Intro to Theology for freshmen. And then okay. I have I have a class called Intro to Ministry in which I've got a bunch of the Christ College Church Vocation students. And, Is that the one where you use Bonhoeffer's Life Together? Yes. Am I remembering yes, that right? Yes, exactly. We study life together. It's just a one-credit class, so we can't do a lot. But I do life together with them, and I also do uh, – this year I'm going to do a little booklet by Rod Rosenblatt called Christ Alone. Mm-hmm. And then and then we're going to do um, uh, a CTCR, Commission on Church uh, – Commission on Theology and Church, Church Relations document on the ministry. Okay. Which talks about commissioned offices and auxiliary offices and things like that. And just making those distinctions between terminology and whatnot. So, so I do that. So I, cause I've got students in there who are pre-deaconess, pre-sem, um, you know, Lutheran teacher, director of parish music, DCE. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that's kind of a, kind of a fun little, just walk into things and think about what does it mean to uh, be a uh, 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 to, to be a church worker um, it, it, that's what that's all it is it's just to just to introduce you to what does it mean to be a church worker last year I was able to bring in several guest speakers this year I'm going to try and do that too bring in a couple of pastors or last year I brought in a missionary who came in and talked right. about being a foreign missionary and so well, it's uh, cool. it, it's kind of fun I enjoy it. But plus, plus, that's a particularly unique group of students. That's a, that's a unique group of kids who are all about 18 years old and want to serve the church. And you right, have to think right. that, that's, that, that's the, the cream of the crop for the most part. They're very sharp. They're very pious. They're very ready to, to um, you know, serve the Lord. And so it's kind of fun. And I would think that unlike probably – some of the more general classes that you teach, this is probably the only class where they're all Lutheran. That is true. That is hmm. true. Uh, unlike the, the majority of the classes where I do have a smattering of Lutherans in my doctrine courses, but I also right. have um, Muslims and people of all. I would say that in my experience, they're mostly 
Christian kids. I think if you choose to go to a Christian college, especially one that's this expensive, <laughs> that right. I, I, right. I, I, private school. I, right. I think that many of these students have some kind of Christian conviction. Um, and at least that's been my experience that they, they do have some background of some kind, but there are students who are absolutely not Christians at all. Hmm. And that does make for an interesting, interesting mix. Yeah, I would think so. I would, th- I would think so. And, and this might be a topic worth our conversation down the road somewhere, but I'm going to guess that most of the teaching that most pastors do are for their own members or at least for Christians. Yeah. You know, well, I, I, I've never taught a Bible class, for example, where, where they weren't Christians. And really, 95% of the time when I am teaching, I am teaching my own parishioners. Yeah, members of your – you know, there is something, at least for me, I've always had this element where I've kind of wanted to be a missionary. Right. And and so I kind of enjoy having the class and seeing two or three students with, you know, the, the headscarves, you know, the, the mm-hmm. Muslim students. And then when I teach the Trinity, when I teach the, the deity of Jesus Christ, I know that they probably don't believe this, but I, I – I approach it and I try to approach it in a way that's apologetic, you know, in the, in the best sense of that term, I try to persuade them. Um, I am, uh, this fall at, at Holy Cross where I serve, uh, we're doing a couple, a couple things in connection with our long range plans. You remember a year ago we started and, and I think we did at least one or two sessions about strategic planning and kind of how all this works. Well, we're, uh, we're kind of working at the implementation phase at this point here, and we're doing one of them on on worship and worship space. So kind of how do we improve our worship space? And then the other one is on is on education and catechesis. Kind of how do we uh, how do uh, what do we do as a church? How do we do it? What can we improve? Um, one of the basic questions that that really um, intrigues me that I don't have an answer to is is simply the question of how can we make it so that we are always about teaching people into the faith and preaching mm-hmm. into the faith, not simply about the faith to our own people. I, I, and, and it's a hard, it's a hard question. How do you, in what context do you do that as a pastor? How can you, how can you create scenarios where you even have the opportunity to do that? Cause it's not going to be Sunday morning. That's for sure. But. No, no, it, that is a challenge. And, and I think it's a very, very good one to take up. Uh, I think yeah. that that's part of what we're, what we're supposed to do. And I think it's, for me, that's kind of fun. I, I've always found that, that aspect of it. I always enjoy teaching like adult instruction course, you know, right, right. with, a, with a little relish because these are people that may or may not be believers in Jesus, but they're certainly not Lutherans. And, and so I always, I always really enjoy those classes, explaining things and seeing the lights go on. Um, yeah, so that's yeah, that's really a good, that's a good emphasis. Yeah. We'll see. And I'm confident that we will have opportunity to talk about it more here. Yeah. Uh, I am kind of in the beginning phases of figuring out my fall. Uh, right now in my Wednesday Bible class, we're teaching First Thessalonians. And, and this, is, this is the class where really what we do is we read a chapter. 
uh, and typically it is the whole chapter. I'll read it at the beginning, and then we will and then we will discuss it. And so then we'll kind of go back and look at it in uh, a little a little bit more detail. Um, so I'm going to be doing that. I think next week. Yeah, next week I'll uh, I'll I'll start start up my other class that it's finishing Genesis. Um, this fall, I haven't made up my mind finally about this, but do you remember, oh, it had to have been close to 20 years ago, our uh, our uh, friend and, and uh, teacher, Dr. Arthur Just, taught a uh, video series on the liturgy. Do you remember oh, these? Oh, oh, yeah. I'm familiar yeah. with them. Yeah, it's I think that they've seen them here before, but it's probably been 10 or 15 years. I'm thinking I may do that this fall for our uh, Sunday Bible class. They're really great little videos. They're about 20 minutes apiece. Um, they come with a study guide, which is of varying quality, in my opinion. Um, and uh, so it's about – I think there are eight sessions. So it's about two months. And I think that might go nicely sort of hand in glove with – both the worship stuff that we're doing and then also with catechesis because that's kind of his liturgy catechesis is sort of his his tie in there. So I'm kind of thinking we'll do that. We'll start either on the 4th or on uh, the 11th of September for that. So that's kind of what we're uh, what I'm about teaching or thinking about teaching right now. Just awesome. Fun. Awesome. Well, I'm not, we don't actually have a this is our topic for this week. Um I thought that it would be worth our while just to just to spend a minute or two talking about what 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 you've been doing over the last couple of months uh, that have kept you so busy uh, and me so busy. What have what have we been doing that has kind of um, that has got us into this uh, in mode and and how does the summer come out at the end? I I always think that's an interesting question for pastors is is summer more relaxing less relaxing, differently relaxing? Is it relaxing at all? Um, or is it just a time without structure? So I don't know. What have you been, what have you been spending your time doing this summer, Scott? Well, I, I'm a professor. So theoretically I get the summers off, but I don't really, because for one thing I taught through July and August. So you Um, didn't actually get the summer off. No, I actually, I literally didn't get the summer off. I I teach in July and August. I had June off, but um, I took up a project that I've talked about on here before is that I, I wanted to teach myself German. And so I spent a lot of June, a lot of my days in June simply doing that. And, um, but you know, you're never really even, you know, cause you're always preparing. I was preparing for my class. I'm, right. I've been, a, uh, you know, I've, I've had a couple of speaking engagements this fall. Well, even this summer and then, and then upcoming this fall that requires some preparation and some study. So I've been doing those things and, and I took a class. I started my doctoral work this summer. So uh, I took, yes. I took, took a class from uh, Loyola, Chicago and um, in my, I just started a second class this week. Hmm. So what was the class you did this summer? The class this summer, so my thing is bioethics, right? right. So the, the class this summer was called narrative ethics. And basically what we did was we read a lot of illness narratives, you know, memoirs of people who have cancer or, you know, or have um, gone through a, a terminal illness or something like that. And, and then just kind of 
peeling back the the layers and and finding how they address ethical questions through their narrative. So we did that. It was kind of it was actually kind of fun. Uh, cool. We watched watched a couple of movies and we looked at graphic novels. There are quite. A, it's amazing to me that there are quite a few graphic novels about people with chronic illness. That so is we, interesting. That yeah. is very yeah. odd. I yeah. did not know that. Me neither, but, but I learned it. Wow. And, and so we looked at a couple of those. And, so and, uh, what is the connection between narrative stories, let's say, and ethics? Kind of what is the what's – the, what's the underlying point behind that? Yeah, well, you know, a lot of times in bioethics – People start out with principles. Okay, here are the right. rules. You yep, know, there's exactly. like five or six rules, and we try and follow those. And what narrative theory does is just simply says we're not going to primarily look at rules. We're going to look at how people actually make decisions. And mm-hmm. it's it's a tenuous connection, but it's really just sort of uh, you know a way of applying narrative theory to bioethics and seeing you know how is it that when you read the people's actual memoirs or their their own stories, uh, how do they make ethical decisions? And we just sure. kind of compared that and examined that. So it's almost phenomenological, yes, or, yes, or almost a almost a sociological study, really. It's, it was, yeah, interesting. Yeah, interesting. it was, and because you know people people will will abide by rules, but when it's them or their right. loved one, then they may not. And then they may not. So, Right. And so how do they frame that? And we also looked at how do people um, see themselves when they're sick? Do they see themselves as victims? Do they see themselves as overcomers? Do they see themselves, you know, and we looked at we we spent some time looking at how hospitals advertise. And there's, Mm -hmm. you you know, like hospitals will advertise. I've seen I've been seeing this commercial lately on TV about a hospital in Texas, a tex- uh, cancer center in Texas, and they, they're saying, we're going to destroy you, cancer. We're, you, you know, your days are numbered. We're going to beat you. And, you know, how, what effect does that have on people who don't defeat cancer and who right. succumb to it? So well, we look, yeah, looked at a lot of there things. There is, in fact, a 100% mortality rate. There is, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, nobody ultimately beats death. Except no. for Jesus, no. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I've always found that kind of that kind of language fascinating and weird. Especially you're, you know, you're sitting in a hospital bed uh, in pre-op before someone who's going to have surgery, and you know, and you want to say everything's going to be okay. You know, you're going to do fine. We'll see you in three hours or whatever. But. You might not. You at least don't really not. know. <laughs> right. And so uh, – and I think that's always a temptation, it's certainly for pastors because we're the ones that always have to have the answers, of course. And There's we want to encourage this, people. Right. But we don't – we shouldn't actually encourage them with something that isn't encouraging. We don't want to lie. Very true. Right. Very true. Uh, yeah. It is – that is interesting. And uh, looking at it from the perspective of narrative or – or even from the perspective of decision making, I think we talked before about how, um, you know, most people make make decisions emotionally and then come up with a rationale for why the decision was right. Yeah, essentially, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, um, I think especially when it comes to medical care and your health and your life. 
Right. right. Or one or of that of someone you love. You make a decision emotionally, which may or may not be shaped, hopefully, by by basic principles and and guidelines. But sure, sure. But that all all of that stuff is kind of internalized. Has to it's be. It's not necessarily a a, a a sort of a logical thought process that no. you go through. No, not at all. Yeah. Interesting. No. Very yes. Interesting. So we did. That's what we did. We spent a lot of time looking at those kinds of, you know, stories and how do people frame their frame their story and uh, looking at hospitals and their advertising and, you know, what effect this this might have. It was it was, you know, it was a little different kind of a class than what I'm used to in bioethics, but I, sure. I found it enjoyable. I found it very yeah. enjoyable. That was cool. I had my um, it, it, it really wasn't, I suppose, technically a class, although we had homework. We were, you know, we were working. Um, I had my uh, orientation class at Aquinas where I'm where I'm starting my doctorate this summer as well. And uh, and it was a really interesting experience. This we haven't talked about any of this stuff. I know um, just because it. At Aquinas, their doctoral program, they use what's called a cohort system. So you start with the same group of people, you take all of your classes together, and you will most likely graduate together. Um, the graduating end depends a little bit on how long the dissertation project takes and stuff. But uh, uh, So there are 11 people in my class. Nine of them are Roman Catholic, and then there's one Lutheran, me, and mm-hmm. there's one Pentecostal. Uh, so, so it is a, an almost entirely Catholic class. Um, some of them are, uh, are monastics. Uh, a couple of them are part of religious orders. Most of, uh, most of them are preachers. There is one woman who is one of the Roman Catholics. She's a, a, a catechist at, uh, at a relatively local parish to, uh, to St. Louis, um, so it, it's a really interesting group. So a lot of it was kind of, uh, I'll say, getting to know you, work together, trying to figure out how we're going to work together. Um, they use this process for they they call it a uh, a, a, a class covenant. Mm-hmm. Essentially, what do you pledge to each other on how are you going to support one another in your studies and all this sort of stuff? I don't like covenant language uh, just because it makes me feel feel very uh, reformed. But right. um, but, you know, nevertheless, the process has actually been very interesting of saying, OK, what is my relationship to these 10 other people who are more or less doing the same kind of things that I do, um, although they come from a very different uh, theological tradition? And so how are we going to relate to one another in this process? So that's been that was a, a very stretching process, and by and large, I'll say I really like these people. There isn't any one of them that I am kind of uncomfortable with. I like them. I think uh, I think we're going to have a great time, and it's going to be fun. But it's uh, it's definitely a, a, a very different world for me as a Lutheran. Tell me about and, uh, the Pentecostal person. Well, um, I, I can't say a whole lot. First of all, because you know we only spent a couple days together but um you know he's uh, a wonderful guy he's been a pentecostal pastor for um uh, many years i don't think he's serving a parish right this second he's also a retired marine um mm. frankly he uh it kind of um kind of shot down a lot of my uh presuppositions about pentecostals 
really within about the first 10 minutes of my meeting him. Mm -hmm. um, uh, first of all, I think he was a Marine for a long time. So he has a, I'll, I'll say quasi military bearing about him. I think he's mm -hmm. a very disciplined person. That's my impression. Uh, he's very academic. Um, very, very into Old Testament studies. Uh, and so in that respect, he's very theological. Now, when I, as a Lutheran, think of a Pentecostal, I kind of think of a, frankly, of sort of a wild-eyed, crazy person that gets visions. <laughs> I mean, that's what I think mm -hmm. of. Mm -hmm. And at least in this instance, that is not, that is not the case. Yeah. And uh, why, did, so why find, did he choose Aquinas is what I'm curious about. Um, I think it was a he had a teacher that went to Aquinas, one of his mm -hmm. one of his professors that went to Aquinas and encouraged him to go. Um, hmm. I do think that it's going to be as as much of a stretch for him being in a Roman Catholic institution as it is for me. Sure. And I, I, and I could be wrong on this, Scott, but I mean, Loyola, of course, is also Roman Catholic. Mm -hmm. But I think that the. Roman Catholicness is going to be more obvious in my program than in yours. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm sure of that. Yeah, um, every everyone who teaches, all of our instructors are going to be Roman Catholic. I mean, it's it's this is a it's a theology program. This is a mm -hmm. it's on preaching, and mm -hmm. so it's going to be very very theological, um, kind of start to finish. Um, so I think that will be very interesting just to kind of see how that plays out. I, I wrote a little blog post about the orientation thing, and I will um, I will put those in our show notes. And nice. by the way, you can find our show notes at thecruxofthematter.net slash 60 slash 60. I think I got that right. And if I don't, I'll... Uh, I'll try to fix it along the way, um, but I'll put a I'll put a link to that uh, to that little article uh, in our in our show notes. So, what's the class you're doing this fall? Then you said that was your summer one was narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the the class I'm doing this fall is called um, oh the title is something like bioethics and Catholic social teaching, which okay. uh, yeah sounds sounds interesting. So. Mm -hmm. Maybe. With, with, with yeah, maybe with this with this particular doctorate, you pick an emphasis, and one of the okay. emphases you can pick is like research ethics. Another one is clinical ethics. Well, one of the tracks and the track that I've chosen is called Catholic thought. Okay, and so this is a requirement for that, and um, because you know social justice isn't just necessarily the thing that I I lean towards for for right. se several reasons, but. Um, as I've kind of been looking at the texts and been looking into it, I think that it's going to be fascinating. I'm, I'm thinking of writing my paper on, um, you know, a patristic approach to uh, how what, what the early church's approach was towards orphans. I've done a little work on that already, and I think that I might I might write about that to this class. Hmm. Yeah, that does sound uh, that does sound interesting, and a, a part of what's interesting for me on that is is that that sort of is going to sort of is parallel to what to what I'm doing uh my class is uh is called the theology of preaching and, and so this is sort of their introductory class um I'm finding uh thus far at least that uh that in in the readings there is a uh there's a strong emphasis on social justice um, there's a there's a strong emphasis, at least thus far, on what I what I would call liberation theology, 
and um and and I guess I would say preaching from the margins. You know, mm. one of the big questions in homiletical thought is the relationship between uh, authority and preaching. You know, kind of traditionally, uh, traditionally, one of the first questions about uh, uh, about preaching is who does it, <laughs> basically. And uh, and so I think that they're I think that they're trying to um, wrestle with that question a little bit. And uh, so we've got a a book called uh, "The Preaching Church: The Poor as Sacra Predicatio," um, the poor as holy preaching. Nice. And es- essentially, what this book does is takes uh, liberation theology and applies it to homiletics. And okay. Applies it to preaching. How does uh, pre the preaching uh, both to the for to the poor and of the poor? Um, how does that shape our preaching life as congregations? It's very Roman Catholic in, in orientation. Um, he has a huge section. Uh, uh, interestingly, first couple chapters really are on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which is which is kind of interesting. Um, I have to digest that a little bit more, but uh, uh, but so that one is going to be this kind of liberation theology and preaching. The next book that we're uh, the the second book that we're reading is is called Preaching as Testimony, and essentially that it's looking at. Um, it's looking at um, – I lost my train of thought. It's looking mm-hmm. at uh, 17th, 18th, 19th century women preachers, kind wow. of early women preachers in America. Um, so Anne Hutchinson. But looking at it from the perspective of, of testimony, that is, you know, they're, they're, they're giving a, a testimony. I haven't read this book yet, so I can't talk about it a whole lot. But again, it's sort of – trying to come at the authority question sort of sideways so i don't know and then we're and then we're reading uh ratzinger's dogma and preaching uh which i also have not read but i'm going to guess that that's going to be a very different approach to that so we'll see well all 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 of these for both of us are are a stretch this is something that we're not used to it's a little different approach for for both of us so i mean i i I enjoy that i did my master's degree at an evangelical school so there were there were certainly ways that that was a stretch as well and now doing this with the roman catholic school and primarily i'm not doing a lot of roman catholic theology although i will some because of the particular track i'm in right Um, but uh, a lot of what i'm going to be doing is going to be more clinically oriented because it's really coming out of the medical school, not the school of philosophy or theology. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, um, you know, this is what uh, grad work is supposed to do. It's supposed to, um, you know, cause you to stretch and pull in different directions a little bit. Learn. And and it's, it's funny just uh, again, just with this first book, uh, a part of what interested me was, um, was the fact that he begins with Bonhoeffer. Who's Lutheran? He's not Roman. Yeah. Catholic. No. And you know, never mind the whole neo-orthodox. How Lutheran is Bonhoeffer? We're gonna we're gonna just take that question and put it aside for right now. Um, I would I would argue, and I think that this is pretty pretty commonly understood that um, Bonhoeffer is still going to use 
he uses Lutheran categories, he uses Lutheran language. His his speaking about the sacraments and a, and of the word is very Lutheran. Um, it, that's that's his that, that's his ethos. He's Lutheran. He's not Roman Catholic. Um, so I find it. I found his assessment of Bonhoeffer very curious. Some of the things that some of the things that he found sort of mind blowing and and this sort of amazing thing i'm kind of like duh yeah <laughs> it's right. just kind of i think i learned that in the small catechism so i, I don't know I'll, I'll uh i'm still digesting it but but it'll be interesting it'll be interesting along the way yeah so did you do anything else fun over the summer uh you know we really didn't travel um so it, i i took a couple of weeks is just sort of staycation and we had mm-hmm. Jacob our son who's a college student in Ohio was he was home with us for a period of time a couple times right but, um but we didn't go anywhere so you know it, that was pretty much it yeah that's all right yeah, yeah. we um we ended up kind of doing a, a a bunch of camping you know that's kind of sort of how we take how we do vacations is is we go camping that way we're able to see more places and it's less expensive um, so we did Sequoia National Forest, Pinnacles National Park, uh, Redwoods National Park, which is up in Northwest California. We even went to a Crater Lake in, in Oregon. Um, and then uh, and then just this last week, uh, we were at Yosemite for a couple of days. So so we did a lot of kind of park camping, I'll say, which is a lot of fun. Um, I think I uh, yeah, I did lose a bumper along the way once. That was kind of unfortunate. <laughs> Um, uh, just trying to, trying to back up a camper and there was a rock I didn't see just oh, no. a long story, but, uh, I've had bumper issues this year, Scott. It's, uh, it's been a bit, uh, uh, messy I'll say. Um, but it was that, that kind of uh, stuff was good. I'll see if I can, uh, maybe I'll put a couple, uh, links to some pictures in, uh, into, uh, into the show notes, but yeah, it was good and it was good to get away. It's, that's always the hard thing for us as a family is mm. that I work away from home. You know, so I mean, I'm at church, so it's not like it's far away, but mm-hmm. very often at vacation, I want to stay home. And yeah, my wife right. works from home for the most part. And so staying home is not a re- is not relaxing for her. That's where she works. Yeah. And so she yeah. wants to leave. So we always have to kind of negotiate this coming and going thing which is a bit uh which is a bit messy but so it goes so yeah yeah well we're we're catching up here at least um is there uh is there anything in particular from this summer scott that is uh bringing you joy or has brought you joy well as i mentioned um i i decided to try and teach myself german and i was really doing great for the first couple of months, uh, the last few weeks at school getting, you know, school just started this week for us. Okay. So the last few weeks I have kind of sloughed off and, um, I, uh, have been working on Rosetta stone okay. as, um, you know, my primary means of studying German and, and I've gotten up to the 18th unit out of 20 and then wow, I've kind of stalled. Yeah. yeah. I stalled, but then I found this other, this new program called Pim Slur. P-I-M-S-L-E-U-R, Pim Slur. And they have 
uh, programs for all different dozens of languages probably. And it, it's just audio and you just repeat audio and it's just a way of teaching you conversation. And hmm. I was trying, you know, it's just very, you know, it's just repeat after me. And, and then it, it, it builds into conversations and, and has a couple of actors who are speaking and, and then you just, they pause and then you say what they say and you learn German doing, you know, you learn German that way. It's diff- very different from Rosetta Stone. So I'm, I'm kind of excited about getting into that. Do you ever use, um, I, I don't remember if we talked about it or not. Have you ever used Duolingo? Have you played around with that? I, I have. Um, yeah. I used Duolingo for, for, uh, several months. Um, yeah. and, and it's great and it's best features. It's free. Right. Right. It doesn't cost anything. I know anything. that I, I'm, uh, I'm, looking around to see if i can find it but i know that they came out with a companion app recently that kind of focuses more on flashcard tiny cards that's the name of it i just found it Hmm. and and so it kind of works in concert with duolingo but it is um it's designed specifically for for creating and using flashcards and so you can make your own or you can download sets and stuff um i used to use a uh I used to use a program called Mental Case, which is a great name um, for uh, for doing flashcards. But here's the reason I bring up bring up a tiny case here is that or tiny cards is that Concordia Publishing House recently came up with a uh, uh, with a set of tiny cards slash Duolingo flashcards of the small catechism. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, and um, and that is my uh, that is my joy bringer pick of the week. Good is for you. Tiny cards and CP- CPH's uh, small catechism because uh, it. I'm always trying to find ways of bringing these things in to our kids in ways that are going to be a benefit to them. Most kids have have access to either a um, uh, an iOS device or an Android device or a computer because this just works on the web, too, I believe. Um, And so this might be another way of getting at this stuff. Yeah. Is to say, okay, you know, work through these cards for five minutes, whatever. Um, So that's my that's my pick for this week is uh, Tiny Cards by Duolingo and CPH's Small Catechism uh, app slash uh, flashcards that go along with that. Well, that's a tool I would definitely use in the parish. You know, you, yeah. you, you know, if you want to try to be a pastor who requires memorization, and I think we do, um, that's just that's just hard for kids now. They don't do it in school. They're not used to having to memorize anything. Right. Um, so any kind of tool that comes along, especially if it's on an electronic device, is is a tremendous blessing. It's welcome. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll. Um. So I'm gonna try to encourage people to make use of that this uh this year in our instruction and we'll see if we uh we'll see if we get anywhere with it it may or may not work and i'll report back all right yeah so any uh any final words for our dear listeners scott it's good to be back yeah other than that um i was just gonna say that um no no final words thanks for listening and let us know what you want us to talk about awesome and with that note we will see you next time goodbye